Hey guys, it's Liz Kelly. Here's what's going on at The Ringer for the rest of the week. We're covering award season nominations, TV superlatives for the year, and the best memes of 2018. You can check those out on TheRinger.com. And check out The Ringer's Instagram, where every Friday, the staff provides their weekend recommendations. And every Saturday, our very own Kate Hallowell takes over with her new show, Tea Time, where she offers up her thoughts on the latest celebrity gossip. Make sure to follow us on Instagram, at Ringer. David, Donald Trump, Chuck Schumer, and Nancy Pelosi conducted an argument about legislation live on TV the other day. What I want to know is what private feud would you like to see play out on television? Oh my gosh. Um, there's got to be a better answer to this than what I'm thinking of. But like, who? What are you thinking? Every everybody hates Chevy Chase, right? Isn't that <laughs> is that where you're going with this? Chevy Chase. I don't know why Chevy Chase just popped into my head, but wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't yeah. that be great to give him a Netflix talk show where he just had to interview all the people that hated him and confront that? that It'd would, be that incredible. Be the problem is like there were three chairs at the White House the other day, and I feel for Chevy we'd need like fifty chairs. Would that be that good television? A, Everybody just like it, holding up their hands waiting to talk. It was an incredible fight, and the way that you knew that that was a real fight, at least the way that I could relate to it the most from from the occasional fights I'll have in my personal life, is the constant stipulation that we don't need to be having this fight right now, or that this isn't really a fight. (laughs) Nancy Pelosi would be like, listen, we can save this for another time, but I just want to make this one last thing, and and Trump would be like, you're right, we can save this for another time, but I'm going to say something else too. It was fantastic. There were like five overlapping agendas there of public versus (laughs) private. Wall versus no wall, shut down that we own versus shut down that you own. It was it was really it was really incredible, really incredible. And that might be that might have been the most productive fifteen minutes of the Trump presidency. <laughs> we are the Hannity and Combs of media podcasting. This is the Press Box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. The Press Box is the media podcast we are not allowed to form an exploratory committee. We are Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker of The Ringer. Three burning issues today, David, to cover. First, it's not even 2019, but people are already writing about the candidates allegedly running for president in 2020. We see who's winning the media primary. Second, we talk about the 25-year anniversary of the Fox Network conquering the NFL, how that changed the way we watch football. And finally, Wither the Weekly Standard Magazine, and is there an appetite for conservative writing that's anti-Trump? Plus, as always, the overworked Twitter joke of the week. But David, let's start with the 2020 media primary. Deval Patrick, former governor of Massachusetts, officially decided that he did not want to make himself into content. But just about everybody else who potentially has a presidential pedigree is ready to take part in this curious exercise where we in the media try to guess how good a candidate they would be before they even declare. I just want to hit you with a bunch of these that have come up over the last week or so. Elizabeth Warren. Yeah. Have you ever seen, I think I'm stealing this thought from Dave Weigel of the Washington Post, but have you ever seen Washington conventional wisdom flip-flop? Like (laughs) how good a job she did getting out in front of the Native American bit. And now where there was a New York Times story about this this week that now that she misplayed her hand completely. And by the way, we are yeah. in the conventional. We're, nobody cares about sure. what we think, but I think we were pretty, pretty high on what she'd done, how she'd sort of handled that. And now everybody's like, actually, this is the biggest problem she has right now. Yeah, I mean, I think that, and I was forgiving of her 
when we talked about her last, and I still think she's incredibly impressive and 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 may end up being a very strong candidate. But it does feel like that the the worst thing you can do is sort of like is sort of ins- insinuate yourself into the into the conventional wisdom too early, and maybe by and and she 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 picked a smart moment to to I mean an interesting moment to uh, to to release that video, but you know it could and that could have been what launched an amazing campaign. But it does sort of feel like it it feels like it 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 landed with thud, uh, or at least it failed to ignite any kind of grassroots excitement and 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 maybe it's a self-fulfilling prophecy you know maybe it was just maybe you know all of these things are are being are being received so so you know so bored i mean it's with such in such a rote fashion by the press corps that like nobody can actually gin up anything interesting well yeah i mean there's no there's no there are no votes on the board right there's no there's no primary in front of us and we're looking at these sort of polls that are sort of semi-meaningful, but this is this kind of stuff she gets graded on. And, you know, to me, it's like, I, I hate to do the thing where we look back at uh, a candidate or an athlete, or whoever, and say, here is the way you could have slickly handled the PR to trick us <laughs> because that's not our job. But, but if yeah. we had to do that, it's pretty obvious that the whole DNA part of her thing was just a completely different wormhole. Right. She, on the one hand, appeared truthfully can say, apparently truthfully can say, you know, my heritage had been talked about by my relatives and I was proud of it. And I and I did something, you know, that I was probably, you know, trying to take advantage of it in some way or I was trying to I did something I shouldn't have done. But this is something this came out of, you know, hearing family stories and a point of pride. And I'd like to apologize, whatever. Instead, she went down this whole DNA track. Which then opens yeah. up this whole question about identity and who's a who's a member and who's not, and that just feels like that's going to be a big, big problem. Um, because as somebody, again, I'm stealing this idea from somebody on Twitter the other day, but like the, the Democratic primaries are going to be fought on the grounds on on the issues of gender and identity, uh, all these things that uh, all these issues yeah. that Trump has stoked, and I don't know. This just feels like it feels like she has not um, she did not in fact ace that. Well, yeah, and I think that, I mean, and it's, you know, you can read this in either direction, but it did, it does sort of feel in retrospect, like she was, she was, that whole thing was, was an effort to show that she could kind of, you know, take Trump on, on his own terms a little bit to be, she's a little bit, you know, she's be a media candidate. He's. I'm gonna huh? I'm gonna create media for myself. I'm gonna be a media candidate and kind of yeah, and to like and to engage in his nonsense, you know, and engage with his nonsense. I mean, and just to say like I you know I can do I can one up him on this front. And I think that after the midterms, uh, you know, as as everything sort of settled in, it looks like, um, you know, maybe maybe the, maybe the old Elizabeth Warren would have been more of the candidate that that the Democratic Party would want right now. Like we don't need to get dirty with Trump. We need to have, we need to be, you know, we need to rise above all that. And, and, you know, I mean, who knows? You, like I said, you can, you can look at it either way, but, um, it does, it does seem like she, you know, she was trying to make a move and, and without, <laughs> and it, 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 without it being, you know, it, since it wasn't received as just some sort of like rousing success, I think the, the odds are, I mean, it, it's going to be perceived as a big failure, even if it was just sort of a nothing. Well, yeah. And I feel it's actually like two overlapping arguments. One is, you know, will this, is Trump just going to call her Pocahontas the whole time? And as 
gruesome and racist as that is, is that just going to sink her candidacy mm-hmm. uh, in the general election? And then also, can she get through the Democratic primary? Right? It's like is she even somebody who's going to win the nomination at this point. She decided not to run last time. And I mean, she yes. she, she allowed Hillary Clinton to run um, without her opposition. She 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 signed on. And and regardless of what you think about Hillary Clinton as a candidate, um, I just think that's that's the worst thing you can do in politics right now is to, I mean, if you, if there's anybody and we're going to get into this list as we, you know, over the next 10 minutes, if, if anybody is asking, if you're thinking about running for president, that is your chance to run for president. (laughs) How did you don't, it's the one cliche that turns out to be true, right? Yeah. You you don't get to Bob Dole. I mean, he didn't win, but like you don't wait your turn. You don't nobly wait your turn. But he ran in 88. Yeah. So he, he, you're right. He was, he was early. You know, he, he, when he, when he was ready, he went. Um, yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think now the, it's amazing because Obama seems to have taught everybody that lesson in 2008, but then all the Democrats forgot about it by 2016 mm-hmm. and did like, oh, we're just going to, we're going to sort of crown Hillary, uh, as the nominee in 2016, even though the lesson of 2008 was not only what you said, you should run as soon as there any, is there's any interest, but also, you should also challenge Hillary. <laughs> that was the yeah. that was just like Bernie Sanders both lessons. proved it. I mean, it... I also said of interesting about where does the Boston Globe came out with this editorial saying that she missed her moment in 2016. Uh, also saying while she's an effective and impactful senator, she's become a divisive figure. A unifying voice is what this country needs after the polarizing politics of Trump. Whatever we think of that opinion, I'm always fascinated by the role the local press plays in the primaries. Right, because they know these people. No, Warren's enough of a natural figure, but these, like the press, just knows these people, and they can be this incredible hindrance because all their scandals can kind of come back out, mm-hmm. uh, or they can pick, you know, little things that they've been covering, all of a sudden become national issues. Uh, Willie yeah. Horton being one of those that we were we were hearing about a little bit with the um, with George H. W. Bush's death the other day. How about Joe Biden? Oof. Big piece in <laughs> don't sound so excited. Big piece in New York Magazine uh, by Gabriel Debendetti, who says that over half a dozen Democrats who've spoken with him recently, he's never been more convinced that he's a man for our time. Uh, he's also doing he's also conducting this in incredibly slow fashion, right? Because it's it's now a ritual of the media that you have to be thinking about running for president. You can't be you can't you don't go from I from I am Joe Biden to I am running for president. There's a long period where you're written about as Joe Biden is thinking about running for president. Right. And uh, Deb and Daddy says that the man who's grown notorious ab- among his friends for taking his time is weighing whether the personal toll of yet another campaign is worth it. Um, kind of an amazing stat, uh, note in the story is that when Biden left the White House, he turned down a four year, 38 million dollar contract to give speeches. For a speaking wow. agency, uh, so that he did not go down the Hillary Clinton path. Also, he, um, Devin Deddy writes, a Biden candidacy would likely serve as a flashpoint for Democrats' central disagreements in the post-Obama, post-Clinton era. Some of his supporters are explicitly talking about it as a chance to win over white working class voters who swung to Trump. So that, which I think points out what's a lot of this is about strategy, right? Yeah. Well, and there's a there's a deeper level of strategy. And I don't remember. I don't think this was in that piece, or this is something I saw. On Twitter, but it felt it had it had the ring of truth to it. But the, there was the idea that that Biden is actually not it, he he doesn't believe he will be elected president uh, or he will he'll get the nomination, but that he believes that in order for his 
endorsement to be of great value, he has to have a fully formed campaign. Uh, and, and then he'll he'll step back and endorse whoever the the nominee is, and and can and can convey to them the full power of what the Obama era and 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 you know Biden himself, which maybe that's conspiratorial, but um, you know there is so much strategy going on right now that we're trying to parse that that it that it kind of feels a little bit legitimate. Another big story is people visiting with people. Better oh, O'Rourke yeah. visiting with Obama was a big story. I now see uh, from a couple of days ago, Better O'Rourke visits with Al Sharpton. Yes. <laughs> like, it's just like, these. here are some people you should meet uh, before you think about running for president. Uh, a weird twist on that was Mike Bloomberg uh, in <laughs> Iowa, who was giving an interview about his uh, presidential prospects. This is from Stephen Perlberg in BuzzFeed News. He said, quite honestly, he was talking about his Bloomberg News operation. He said, quite honestly, I don't want all the reporters I'm paying to write a bad story for me. Bloomberg said through laughter during the interview. Um, <laughs> surprisingly, and then he also said maybe he would put his company in a blind trust or sell it if he ran for president. Not shockingly, Pearlberg reports reporters at Bloomberg News are on edge <laughs> that they will be out of a job. These are these are many of these are political reporters, right? Financial political reporters will be out of a job because their boss decided to run for president. This is like the anti-Trump, right? He he actually wants to put it in a blind trust. Yeah, that that whole candidacy is so mind-boggling to me. Uh, I don't I don't really know what to do with it. It, it just seems like don't you feel exact- reporters are, are the only people on earth rooting for half of these people to run for president because they're fantastic. I mean, like Mike Bloomberg shaking hands in an Iowa diner is such Blo- fantastic just- copy. A while ago, I think when he when he first started teasing that he was going to run, I think it was was I think it must have been Slate the Slate Political Gab Fest because David Plotz is an unabashed Bloomberg head, um, and and but but I think even there the discussion was like, is it is it at all possible that he could get enough votes in what New York and California mm-hmm. to 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 get a nomination because there there can't be any constituency for him anywhere else. No, uh, at least in the you know at le- at, you know in the primary season. We did this two um, years ago, remember? Yeah, and that was the that was the whole that was the whole thing that he was going to come as like a third party candidate or something like that. But, so yeah, so why is it why the I mean I guess because because you see the opening you see the Democrat has a good chance to win, but I mean it seems like if he was really interested in making a difference, wouldn't it, he could he could do that on the Republican side? Yeah, I mean he donated a bunch of money to. Uh, to the midterms. So this is like seen as a, I mean, again, I just feel the media is rooting for this as much as anybody. And by the way, with good reason, because if you're like a, you know, if you're the, let's call yourself like the fifth or sixth string reporter at the New York times, you're not getting Biden. You're probably not getting Warren. But if you, (laughs) if, if the field keeps going, this is what happened with Trump, right? All the, all the ace, all the aces got Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio and if you were kind of down the list, but you got trauma, ah, he's not going to win. <laughs> so it's like, oh, this is great. You know, you want <laughs> as many book deals now. Yeah. <laughs> the reporter's incentive is to have as many people in the race as possible, not yeah. just because of the the ranking system, but just because it's better copy if there's a billion people in the race. Mm-hmm. Not running for president, David Michael Avenatti. What a shock. Oof. After all of that, um, <laughs> he. Um, he had a very strange non-presidential campaign. Remember, remember when Michael Avenatti was expertly playing the media? I mean, like he was a, yes. he was a master of uh, of the media. So good that there was this kind of fake thing out there that Democrats wanted their own Trump, and that Avenatti yeah. was the Trump. He could take he could get he could get in the mud and 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 you know 
argue in Trump's own terms or whatever. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, so um, anyway, he has, says he finally uh, decided uh, after talking to his family, he would not run. He said, I do not make this decision lightly. I make it out of respect for my family. So he is truly talking like a politician if he's doing it. I want to – we can't get away from this without talking about this piece in Politico. Did you see this by Juliana Glover who suggested that Biden and Romney should run together on a unity ticket? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you did see this? Yes. Um, this was this was kind of wild. And and the first thing that stuck out uh, to me about this piece was a reference to Cincinnatus. You know, I think we should ban. It's kind of like banning all, um, you know, lies, damn lies, and statistics references in a piece. <laughs> we should ban all references to Cincinnatus. Uh, Glover writes, a Biden-led bipartisan ticket would pledge to serve a Cincinnatus-like single term and address all of the U.S.'s ticking time bombs like Social Security, Medicare, health care reform, climate change, money in politics, immigration, gerrymandering, and infrastructure investment in four years. Wow, it's going to be a great four years. <laughs> Incredible. Can you believe they're going like to get all that done? When you know you have a dentist appointment in like two weeks, so you just start brushing your teeth twice a day and flossing regularly, just for the, but just for two weeks, so you're not actually <laughs> going to keep that up year round. In political reporters' fantasies, where does the bipartisan presidential ticket rank with the brokered convention? Which is which is number one <laughs> and which is number two? Like, will never happen in their wildest dreams. But damn it, it makes for it makes for a couple of good segments on hardball. That's what matters. Yeah, in the press box too. All right, David, it's time <laughs> for the overworked Twitter joke of the week, where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious. That all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Our first entry this week, David, comes from our friend of the show, Chris Quattlebaum, who's from Dallas, Texas. So we already like him. Um, he sends us this one. You were aware that there is a new NHL team in Seattle. That was a big story this mm -hmm. week. Uh, it was an overworked Twitter joke to say the NHL Seattle team should be named the baristas and all the players' names could be misspelled on the backs of their jerseys. <laughs> Thank you, Chris, for that one. Actually kind of funny, right? That's funny, yeah. Um, another one from Isaac Chips, another fan of the show, friend of the show. Um, did you see there were all the laughs about this Elon Musk interview with 60 Minutes and Leslie Stahl? Oh, my God. Uh, that was really bizarre. Yeah, but the pull, well, the pull quote, the sort of semi-unfortunate pull quote from uh, media it was, Elon Musk, colon, I want to be clear, I do not respect the SEC. Now, he was not talking about the football conference. <laughs> But it was an overworked Twitter joke, and this is this is our very own Roger Sherman to say, Bama ain't played nobody, he added. Uh, thank you to Isaac for that one. It was, did you see the news that Kathy Lee Gifford is leaving the Today Show? Oh, my God. Were you so reminded sad. that Kathy Lee Gifford is is on the Today Show? I, kind of, I, I feel like, I, obviously, I know that, but I just kind of forget it I think, every... I think Megyn Kelly has done more to remind me that, that Kathy Lee is still around, <laughs> I think, Because people Kathy are always Lee like, is... why don't we get Kathy Lee some more time? Yeah. Kathy um, and Hoda are a real force. They're a real force. Uh, Matt Koppel uh, from L.A. sends in uh, this one. He says, can I preemptively call the Overworld Twitter joke and announce it will be good luck to Kathy Lee as she departs for her role as the White House Chief of Staff. Thank you <laughs> to Matt for that. A lot of Chief of Staff jokes this week, uh, by the way. Finally, from the world of court filings, um, you saw the the various uh, filings in with Michael Cohen that referred to Donald Trump as individual one. That was a big big deal this week. Yes, of course. Uh, yeah. Um, it was an overworked Twitter joke to say that today was the day individual one finally became president. 
<laughs> it's like it's like really two 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 overworked Twitter jokes dancing a sultry tie into one. Yeah, that's great. Great stuff. Anyway, all right, David. Topic number two. Forgive the self promotion. I wrote a big piece this week, a big oral history about the Fox Network. Twenty five years ago, this month, Fox came in and decided to overturn the existing network order and pay a giant sum of money to buy NFL rights. This was greeted at the time as something completely insane happening. In fact, it was like, it was the overworked Twitter joke of 1993, if we'd had Twitter, to say that Bart Simpson was going to call the games for Fox. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that Tracy Ullman and Bart Simpson would be in the booth and, and football would never be the same again. Of course, it's 25 years later now. And having football games on Fox, which I have one here on Thursday night, seems like the most obvious thing in the world. Oh, yeah. But I wanted to sort of go back and see how, what happened, first of all, in December of 93, and then just kind of think about how that moment changed the way we watch football and kind of changed the course of football on TV. It was an incredibly good piece. Very, it was, it, you know, like the best oral histories. It was long, in-depth, um, but but just, I mean, it was it propulsive. Uh, it, and I, it was, <laughs> We're going to put that on the poster. Propulsive. Huh? <laughs> Thanks. David um, Shoebaker. It, the best oral history since Saving Private Ryan. The, uh, but it was, <laughs> it, um, it's incredible. I mean, it was, it was just really, I mean, it was just a really, really interesting moment in time. And especially watching or you know, watching, listening to people kind of relive the, the moment of awe and where, where they realized that, that, you know, football that the that something is sort of ephemeral as the, the rights to professional football it was going to um i mean kind of became it's a, a living breathing thing is, yes. is that is that is that the way to is that a way to put it yeah um you know we've all i mean anyone that's done anyone that's you know worked in just about any industry has had their uh, has had the experience of like running P and L statements for whatever you know for whatever you're trying to buy, whatever you're trying to acquire, whatever your whatever line of work you're in, and and I know you know from from personal experience way back, just kind of running up against, I mean, where you can just see right through the the formulas, and you're just like, why are we making this decision? Like this does this isn't this isn't a mathematical thing. This is bigger than math. We need to. We need to hire hire this writer. We need to publish this thing because, um, it, you know, it has deeper value, and and that's really what the story was all about, right? I mean, it was going from the the sort of accountant's desk, like this is what we can afford to pay based on the ads we've been selling, and going to a different space where it was, especially for Fox in its fledgling days, was just saying, you know, we need if we if we have football, then we're important then we're significant and every, and you know, a rising tide will lift all boats and everything else. That's exactly right. I mean, Rupert Murdoch said after the deal, he said, I essentially, I just bought a network, right? The price, yeah. if I went to buy NBC or CBS would be billions and billions of dollars, but I'm paying $400 million a year to the NFL. And because I put the NFL on my kind of pseudo semi network, it just became a network. And the value that it was worth before just went up exponentially. You and I remember what Fox was like in the early days. Mm -hmm. And I think now in the kind of age of Apple TV and streaming, it's almost mind-blowing. But, I mean, you know, growing up in Dallas-Fort Worth, all the channels were between 1 and 13. 
And then yeah. Fox was channel 33, and I would physically have to turn the get up and turn the di- turn a second dial. By the way, there was the VHF yeah. dial and the UHF dial. Turn the UHF dial and then get this grainy picture, and then go mess with the antenna so that I could actually see Fox. And it was like, you, it, it I just, don't, anybody under the age of 30 doesn't understand any of the words you just said. I just sound like I was talking about like, you know, the Wright brothers are, are getting, you know, uh, <laughs> or like gathering around the radio to hear like a radio yeah. drama of the shadow or something like that. But that, I think that, that was real in the yeah, late 80s. Yeah, I, I think that even if some people listening to this, and I can't, I mean, this is sort of how I would experience the piece, your piece. Some people listening to this, I think, will be able to, I mean, can wrap their minds around UHF, VHF, or just the idea that like, you know, it takes a lot, it, you know, it's hard to get in on the lower, the lower end of the dial. And even now in the era of digital cable, um, you know, it's not like, what's the most recent one? When like the Vice, when like the Vice TV network became sure. a thing. CBS Viceland, Sports Network or something like that. Yeah. It's like, they don't get to be on, in, in like the, the first 20 channels that you go across. Right. I mean, those are, those are sort of reserved for your very basic, um, almost like utility scale level television channels. Mm-hmm. And, um, but it wasn't just that. It was that, that when they got the the TV deal, I mean, when, when they when they when they acquired the rights to the NFL, they it's not like they just moved up the dial. In a lot of big markets, they just started stealing the local, or they started claiming the local affiliates from CBS. Totally, like channel it'd be like channel five, like channel four is NBC, channel five is CBS, channel seven is ABC. Except now, channel five was just like we don't want you anymore, CBS, because you don't have football. We're going to switch to becoming a Foxness, a Fox affiliate, and that is crazy to think about. And that's exactly what happened with us in in DFW. It is because, and it was so funny because the CBS affiliate, which was Channel Four, there said, "Wait, the Cowboys just won two Super Bowls. You mean we don't have the Cowboys games anymore Mm -hmm. because Fox took the rights? Oh, we're going to become a Fox Network, KDFW, and then like the next day they were a Fox Network, and it was like, oh." Okay. And by the way, to, to continue your, your metaphor there with the Vice Channel, imagine if you went all the way to the Vice Channel at number 375 or whatever it is, and then it mm-hmm. didn't look clear. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it didn't look like the rest of the channels because you couldn't, you couldn't quite make out the picture. Yeah. That was Fox. Also, Fox at that period was like some of the best stuff on television, some of the absolute worst stuff on television. Mm-hmm. In that like 93 window, I think they had just canceled – the Chevy Chase show, which was one of the great disasters in TV history. Um, you know, they had in living color, they had the X-Files, which had just started. Um, they had the Simpsons, of course, married with children, stuff like that. But there was just so much junk on that network. And it was only two primetime hours, still only two primetime hours. Um, it just didn't feel real. And I said, one of the things that interested me about doing this piece was it almost feels like this is a template for when Amazon or, Facebook yeah. comes along in a few years and says, we need we need the NFL, and we're going to have to convince the NFL that if they put their games on our platform, that people will actually be able to see it. Yeah. Because that's what the Fox thing was. The owners were like, wait, can we can we get these games? Is that going to happen? Yeah. I mean, and I, and I think that the lesson, I mean, presumably the lesson is going to be to at least to the, the you know, more capitalist owners in the league that like if there's enough money involved then then you know then the answer is yes um it's really intri- it was you know really intriguing that that you know we you you saw i mean it was mostly in the beginning of the piece that you touched on this but the it was the at that point the new generation of owners led by Jerry Jones mm-hmm. and um, Pat Bowen the Broncos oh and Pat Bowen who would who I think you said it explicitly that, you know they there were a lot of all the 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 first kind of generation of NFL owners were 
were, you know, got in at relatively low, you know, small amounts of money and were just proud to be NFL owners. But then the, the new generation were interested in it as an investment. And that's certainly the way the professional sports is running more and more now. I mean, half the NBA teams feel like they're owned by hedge fund managers. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, and, they, and they just needed the money because they'd paid so yeah. much to buy the Dallas Cowboys and Denver Broncos compared yeah. to, you know, the Mara family that had owned it since the NFL was much smaller. I was also, by the yeah, way, totally it, interested in just this idea of how much creativity happened in that period. Because it's sort of like, you know, if Rupert Murdoch just wrote a bigger check than CBS, you know, at some level, the story is kind of like, okay, right? <laughs> Rupert Murdoch <laughs> and is, not a, is not exactly a plucky underdog <laughs> no. in any sense or a sympathetic character really in any sense. But he hired all these guys, including David Hill, who was an Australian who came from uh, Sky Sports in the UK, mm-hmm. and essentially said, just create football however you want it to. And once they'd signed John Madden to this incredible sum of money, they were able to just essentially say, we're just going to do stuff. Uh, we're going to put the score on the screen. We're going to have this wacky pregame show. We're going to hire 25-year-old Joe Buck and say, hey, you call games. Joe Buck had never called a football game in his life. Uh, and the first one was going to be on national television on Fox. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's. It, it, I mean, honestly, you know, you start the piece by saying um, – you know, maybe the most the most shocking thing about what listening to Joe Buck and Trey Aikman call a game is how normal it feels. But that can be said about mo- a lot of the sort of technological and advances that that Fox made. I mean, imagine they got they it, people thought that they were ruining sports by putting the score on the screen. Mm-hmm. Just I mean, and, and and just how how incremental a change that that seems in retrospect, how minor a thing that is, um, really ends up being. I mean, it's sort of hard to short to to sell it short, right? I mean, it, that that might be one of the most significant advancements in sports. You know, I mean, in our lifetimes, that that now you can just look on TV and see what the score is all the time. And you used to be so dependent on the announcers, on on you know the expectation that you'd be watching nonstop. The producer, um, like, when are they going to put it up again? Essentially, like yeah. every four or five minutes or whatever it was. Yeah, John um, Madden. When I was interviewing, he was like, we had all these stats on the screen, like. 10 catches, you know, for X number of yards and all that stuff. And the thing we didn't have was the score and the time, yeah. which seems like the most elemental thing. And and the it's, it's hilarious, but small, I mean, small but hilarious point. Everybody that you interviewed agreed to. I mean, I, I, the first time I read this line, I thought it was just like one person's opinion. And it was just it was sort of a joke. Everybody seemed to agree that the reason why they used to not have the score was because they thought if it was a blowout, nobody would watch. Right. They're like literally trying to to trick the viewer into watching their product. Mm-hmm. And I think in some ways that's the that's the metaphor for just the blindness of groupthink at that point. Right. Because they were they they thought they thought that they had to sell you on the NFL. And in fact, you know, the NFL was then already, but, in, you know, and in, in, in since even increasingly um, just an intrinsic part of our lives. Yeah. And by the way, we should also mention just since we're, since we're, uh, you know, luxuriating in 1994 again, no NFL package. So if your local yeah. game was boring, you couldn't just be like, okay, I'm going to go watch the Chargers now. That no. didn't exist. You could go for a walk. You can mow the lawn. That also, was it was really life. hard to find what the other scores of the other games were. You were depending on television, right? There's no, you know, I can't, I can't, you know, pull out my phone and find that information. My, there's no second screen, reliable second screen at that point. So it just wasn't as easy to say, by the way, on the Fox box, this is fine print that I didn't have room for in the story, but mm-hmm. 
ESPN and ABC used a running clock during the 94 World Cup. Dennis Swanson from ABC told me this is because this is now where we get into everybody's claiming credit for the invention. So I tried to tried to strenuously say not say that David Hill invented the Fox box in American television, but CBS at ABC had used it in the summer of 94. Fox, of course, blows it out, names it the Fox box in the fall of 94. And then I think I believe ESPN used it on their NFL coverage that year. Just just in case, just in case I'm, you know, I want to make sure I have the other. Another one of David Hill's contributions to the form, to the art, was uh, increasing the pregame show from 30 minutes to an hour. That was Hill, right, that made that call? Yeah. He, he is, is, again, ESPN was already doing it on cable, but that was, yes, absolutely, in networks. That was a big deal. But that just, it's just so funny to think that, like, there, that there was any question about the appetite for people sitting around and talking about the game that was about to happen. Uh, that's it's it's you know it's like it we seems, only we can only hold your attention for thirty minutes talking about football. <laughs> can you believe that? And and CBS is the NFL today was a big show. You know, Brent Musburger in the old days, Terry Bradshaw and Greg Gumble, like that was a big deal. And mm-hmm. yet it was like we can only squeeze thirty minutes out of this because people yeah. are just people don't want to know more about football. And again, remember again, I just say this over and over again. This is when people aren't sitting around reading Twitter. I mean, this is if if you want to read if you've already read the paper. The NFL today is the only source you have, and it was 30 minutes uh, for pregame stuff and reading and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, that is the Fox story. It is on the ringer.com right now. All right, David, let's talk about one more topic, which is the weekly standard. I am reading to you today from a Politico story by Jason Schwartz titled, Something Bad is Going to Happen on Friday. Weekly standard staffers brace for the end. Uh, Schwartz writes that standard uh, staffers at the standard have been told to gather For an all-hands meeting Friday, they're bracing for bad news about the conservative magazine's future. Uh, The publisher of the Weekly Standard Media, D.C., has not sent out an official memo, but word is circulated among the staff. And this comes on the heels of a lot of uh, press reports a week ago, which were essentially saying that the parent company, Clarity Media, uh, which is the parent company of Media, D.C., the Weekly Standard's publisher, was favoring... Uh, the we, the magazine of the Washington Examiner, uh, and also that there was this tension, which is, I think, the, really the sort of interesting story here, that the Weekly Standard had been so anti-Trump. And there's this whole question of, is there an appetite or to what extent is there an appetite for anti-Trump writing within conservative media, right? It's been almost totally stamped out on the Fox network. Yeah. Fox News, that is. So, you know, are there going to be people, is there going to be, you know, is there an appetite? What do you make of that question? Is that, is that what you think the story is here? I think it's a little bit, it's a little bit reductive. It's also a little bit old fashioned, right? I mean, I don't think that the problem with the weekly standard is their political bent. Now, maybe if it's because their anti-Trump stance led them to Googling weekly standard right now, led them to, uh, (laughs) just completely, you know, sleep inducing pieces like did Donald Trump really cause the GOP to lose the suburbs where you're kind of taking an arch position that doesn't that that both like reinforces your anti-Trump stance, but also doesn't make it doesn't scream it too loudly so that people will click. Um, uh, You know, I think that I think that, yeah, if you're if you're if your entire if your entire mission statement is we are the conservative periodical that's that's anti-Trump, then, you know, there, that could, it could get droning after a while. But I think that the problem with the Weekly Standard is probably a, has more to do with the overall media landscape and, uh, you know, 
just the 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 fact that I mean, you know, it was it doesn't it 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 seems like forever ago. It wasn't that long ago that we were passing around obituaries for the new republic even though it's still around but i mean that that the 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 new republic that we grew up on is you know cease more or less ceased to exist there's just less of an appetite for like magazines that 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 try to be thought leaders and, and not even thought leaders like political leaders uh, in the way that they used to well when you say appetite though it's the rich patrons appetite because all these things always depended on rich patrons it's not like the new republic was making money Right, sure. it was Marty Parrots who was deciding to pay for it, and the standard was Rupert Murdoch, you know, in the old days, right? Mm-hmm. So before it got sold, and so it's sort of this kind of thing of like these magazines are going to exist to the extent that rich patrons want them to exist and are willing to sustain the losses, uh, and then they're not, uh, and then they don't, and they either cease to exist or exist in you know sort of downsized less interesting format. I do think a couple of things are interesting here. One is that I kept waiting. I think finally Jack Schaefer mentioned, but I kept waiting for all these pieces about how the standard had tacked against Trump to mention that the weekly standard endorsed John McCain in 2000. Yeah. It's like apostasy within the Republican party is very much in their veins. And that was a mm-hmm. big deal at the time yeah. because, you know, coming out for McCain, who was sort of nominally running to the left of Bush and sort of embracing this whole American greatness thing. And, you know, casting their lot with him was a really, really big deal. Um, and that was, you know, that was, and again, they became later became known as, you know, sort of, you know, kind of this cheerleading for the Iraq war and stuff like that. And very in step with how the Bush administration actually behaved. But, um, but that in 2000 shouldn't be forgotten. The other thing about the standard to me that's always fascinating is there has been in conservative media, there is, and here I'm mostly talking about National Review, though I guess we could sort of blow it out to the websites now. There was always a lack of like good feature writing. You know, you'd open like yes. in this in the early 2000s, you'd open the National Review, and essentially the feature would be Mitt Romney is awesome. Like it, wouldn't, yeah. it would not be a narrative feature at all. It would just be like just kind of like a, either a long version of the columns in the front of the magazine, or it would just be some kind of thinly guised political advocacy. The Weekly mm-hmm. Standard had good writers. Yeah. You had really good writers. Andy Ferguson, Matt Labash, Jonathan Last, Tucker Carlson, even before he lost his mind. Like, they were really good. And you'd read a piece, you'd want to like sink your teeth into a piece because it's like, this is just, this is just well written. It's just a good story. Uh-huh. Um, and I always thought that was one of their biggest achievements is that within that space, again, the New Republic did that for a long time and under various regimes, but like, they created something that was just on its own merits, a good read and a good magazine. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's right. And and, and uh, but but I think going back to what your point about you know the wealthy benefactor that that always keeps these things afloat. Um, you know, I mean the 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 New Republic was famously known as the in-flight magazine of Air Force One during the Clinton administration, <laughs> and the Weekly Standard. They will never had live that. that down. By the way, that that house no, ad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, but but the but the Weekly Standard, you know, along with the National Review, but I think the Weekly Standard more so had that had some of that that you know that mojo. Um, they were for the in-flight magazine of Bush's tractor that was driving around Crawford at his uh, ranch. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I think that that's part of what you know. Product and law statements aside, I think that 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 sort of that sort of uh, reputation is what keeps the wealthy benefactors, you know, re- signing the checks. And it's just really hard in 2018 
to be the official inf- for anybody to be the in-flight magazine of anything. You know, I mean, there's just there's there's too many competing voices out there, and you don't need uh, a wealthy benefactor, and you don't need you know a hundred year legacy to get people to read your your online screed. You know, and 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 uh, <laughs> and, and I think I like screeds. We need more screeds <laughs> in the world. <laughs> online screed. Um, but yeah, and I, I just think I just think it's hard to keep that. It's hard. To, it's it's hard to 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 keep the level of of esteem that uh, that will keep you know a lot of those wealthy benefactors involved. I will say this about the idea of kind of apostasy and attacking your own party. It has become across the political spectrum, not just in conservatism, but I think also on the other side too. It's just become less. What's the word I'm looking for? Marketable. Mm-hmm. Um, the incentives are all going the other way, because you know, again, in that in that world where I worked very briefly, but like there was, you know, if you worked at the at the New Republic, you were rewarded for your willingness to knife Democrats and mm-hmm. knife other liberals, and that was where all the incentives were. That's how you proved your spurs, right? That's how you did it. And take, you know, for those for generations of that magazine saying, ah, that Ronald Reagan, you know, he he kind of has a good idea. I don't know. When I mean yeah. when I worked there, Andrew Sullivan endorsed George W. Bush in the pages of the New Republic when Al <laughs> when Al Gore's former professor Marty Parrots was owning the magazine. And now I just feel like, I mean, can you partly this is Donald Trump, partly though, I think this is polarization that started before Trump. It's like just imagine a liberal right saying, "Ah, Donald Trump's got a pretty good idea about this. He's right." I mean, you want you want to go with that take on Twitter? You want to no, roll that a, out there? The incentives yeah. go all the opposite way, right? Everybody's everybody's super polarized. It's really hard. I mean, you saw. I mean, we we saw this in the midterms. It's really. I mean, even even moderate. You know, there were many more moderate Republicans who were afraid to run. You know, anti-Trump campaigns or to run in a different direction for fear that he'll. You know, he would have he would have made he would have involved himself in the campaign. But I also think that it's just that it, you know, because of the polarization, but specifically because of the the volume and and centrality of Donald Trump, that it's not it's harder to do what you're talking about doing at the New Republic, where you can kind of take down some people around the edges, right? I mean, it's harder to write the piece where where you say, uh, you know, leaving aside my opinion about Donald Trump. These Republicans in Congress are not or or have made a really or you know trying to pass a really dumb bill. You know everything is about Trump, so you can't (laughs) you know it's it's you can't really be counterintuitive. And and maybe that's the bigger point. It's hard to be counterintuitive when um, you know everybody is just intuitively either. <laughs> rapidly pro or anti-Trump. <laughs> I mean, like Barry Weiss and Eve Pizer can't even become friends now. I mean, everybody just ah, oh, that's terrible. What are you doing? Yeah, ratio that. And again, yeah. I, mean, I don't, I don't necessarily. Again, I don't necessarily have a problem with this era. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not casting aspersions because I think a lot of it, a lot of that old New Republican stuff. I can speak less to the Weekly Standard, but that New Republican stuff was kind of let me show you how independent I am. And what a nonconformist dim I am by knifing people in my own party. There was a lot of performative parts of that. But I do still think the world has changed and yeah. the incentives in journalism have changed. And, and again, it's like when I read like, what did Jonathan Chait do today that makes everybody mad? It's because here is a person from that world and everyone else is not from that world anymore. 
and everyone else yeah. is not playing by those rules. And well, and just just I mean, this is not specifically about the Weekly Standard, but this kind of goes without saying that this is how the media landscape has changed. That Jonathan Chait is making people mad by with one tweet about and one you know in a response to a subsequent tweet about his experience working at New York Magazine vis-a-vis the recent unionization. Whereas that would have been a page in the New Republic when he was there, right? And you, you don't, you don't, you don't, you don't have the space anymore. No one's interested in it. But you certainly you don't even have the time because all every counterintuitive take has already been made on Twitter. Uh, see uh, the overworked Twitter joke of the week segment. Every 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 counterintuitive take has been made ten to a hundred times by the time your magazine is going to hit the press. You know, so it's it's a it, it's a tough that's a it's a tough job description now. Can we have a contrarian edition? Uh, counterintuitive edition of this press box before the podcast before we uh, sign off for the year. Absolutely, both of us just have like an extremely unpopular ideas. <laughs> so there's used to be work called on that. I kind of like right. What was that? yeah, slate pitch. Yeah, a slate pitch. I right. forgot about that. That's kind of gone away, hasn't it? All right. Yeah. Well. Speaking of speaking of counterintuitive domains that are uh, not so counterintuitive anymore. All right, David. That's the press box for this week. Jim Cunningham is our ace producer. Chris Almeida on research. He is David Shoemaker. I am Brian Curtis. We're back on schedule next week on Tuesday, and then we will have Tuesday shows for the rest of the year. See you next week, David. See you later, man. Something bad is going to happen on Friday. Uh-huh. What are you thinking? Oh, my gosh. Um, there's got to be a better answer to this than what I'm thinking of. That's exactly right. Huh? What do you make of that question? Is that is that what you think the story is here? I think it's a little bit It's a little bit reductive. It's also a little bit old-fashioned. What a shock. You could go for a walk. You could mow the lawn. That was your only other option. And knife other liberals. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. Great stuff. Anyway. <laughs>